Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to another episode of No Head, where we learn to live in the present moment. How are you doing, breathers? Yeah, that's my name for all of you who are taking time to breathe and be in the present moment. I hope you're keeping well and taking care of yourself. If you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Dorothy Oakle. And when I'm not doing my full-time job in communications, I facilitate a course at Google called Search Inside Yourself. Today's quote is from Bruce Lee. Quote, The biggest adversary in our life is ourselves. We are what we are, in a sense, because of the dominating thoughts we allow to gather in our head. All concepts of self-improvement, all actions and paths we take relate solely to our abstract image of ourselves. Life is limited only by how we really see ourselves and feel about our being. A great deal of pure self-knowledge and inner understanding allows us to lay an all-important foundation for the structure of our life from which we can perceive and take the right avenues. End of quote. Truly excited about this show where we navigate life together. As is our practice, let's take a moment to fully arrive and settle down by doing a few breathing exercises. Fully arriving is about coming to stillness tuning in to the present moment. It's about allowing your breath to transition you from what you are doing to this present moment. This allows you to become still and check in on how you're feeling. So let's practice together by being aware of our next three breaths. We will breathe in through the nose to a count of five, we will hold to a count of two, and we will let the breath out slowly through the mouth to a count of five. Let's begin. Breathe in through the nose. Hold. Breathe out slowly through the mouth. Breathe in, hold, breathe out slowly, breathe in, hold, breathe out slowly. The goal of our mindfulness practice is simply to experience life as it unfolds in the present moment. My guest today is Sheida Jaffa, a psychotherapist and a spiritual seeker. Today, I am so excited 
because I'm joined by Shada Jaffa. And you need to, to meet Shada to know why I was attracted to her. She's got this very calm demeanor. She's very thoughtful about what she says. And she is also the mother to a friend. So that was just really wonderful. When I met her, I was just like, you have to come here. Shada, welcome to No Head Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dorothy. It's so kind of you to invite me. So I know I've read a lot about you and I was wondering whether, and I don't think I can do justice to introducing you. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey? So, yeah, I was born um, in Eastern Congo and uh, grew up in Kigali, in Rwanda. You know, I was brought up in Africa with an Indian heritage. So we had five generation uh, of Indians uh, from my great, great grandfather who then came uh, to Africa, first to Zanzibar, and then slowly the Asians made their way to Uganda. And my father was born in Uganda. And yeah, and then he came to work in Rwanda. He got married to my mother who was from the Congo. Right. So that's why I was born in, in Congo, uh, in Bukavu. And then um, they lived in, in Rwanda, started small, you know, in the small business. And yeah, and then prosper from there. You're a psychotherapist now. Tell us a bit about what you studied and how you ended up becoming a psychotherapist. So at, you know, the age of 15, I, I left home and moved to Belgium to further my studies. Uh, because there was no more secondary school in Rwanda in Kigan. And we were going to the Belgium school. So at age 15, all of a sudden going from Rwanda to uh, Belgium was, you know, very, very uh, traumatic experience. It was a sudden sense of loss because, you know, I was away from my family. We were in this boarding school. And even though I was educated in the Belgium school, you know, being in Brussels, I felt totally immersed in a, in a European culture. And in the 70s, it wasn't so multicultural. So you were, uh, we were the kind of the odd one oh, out. Right. Cool and, and but there were a few of us who left from Kigali uh, together. So, but I did hate my time in Brussels. The boarding school, the, it was just a very traumatic experience. It was just not the best of my experience. And from then I, you know, went to finish my high school and then I went to, to England to learn English. And I just stayed in England. Was, it was England really... better than Brussels? Yes, I think there was somehow a freedom. I mean, uh, England was very, quite cosmopolitan. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, there was an easiness about it. Whether it was a new dressing or whether a new demeanor. Um, there were Indian restaurants, so we could eat Indian food. And um, yeah, and learning English because I didn't know English at all. It was, um, it was quite You're speaking French then? Yes, it was You're all French. French. So after that, you know, I kind of moved to, but then I just, you know, it's people who cross your path who also influence you. And because I didn't know English, I worked as an au pair. Uh, in an English family to learn English. Right. And, uh, and the lady, the husband and wife I was working for were both uh, uh, doctors and they had small children. So it was quite easy. They would leave home and I had to read stories and everything, you know, uh, be with the children. But the biggest shock was learning to clean a house and do ironing. 
is something I'd never done in Africa. Right. Uh, boarding school was just basically make our bed and start to learn to cook and cook for the small children. So it was quite uh, quite a cultural shock. We are spoiled um, a bit in Africa because we have people who help us do all these things. So you never really learn sometimes. And yeah. you have people who are helping you. There's someone who's cooking for you. And now you're the one doing the cleaning, yeah. and taking care of the kids. Yeah. You survived. Um, yeah, I survived. And the, the lady was absolutely amazing. And I guess I was very, very shy. I know you wouldn't think so now, but I was terribly, terribly timid. And uh, she kind of, I don't know, believed in me and enrolled me in to the technical college there to do what was called there uh, an O&D, Ordinary National Diploma, which mm -hmm. would then have allowed me, which would allow me to go to university. Right. So I did that. And then I went to Kent University in England and I did accounting com compared to, you know, I know, very wow. strange. <laughs> um, and it was really, I think, in a way, the best time of my life because you become an adult, you don't have parents, you meet different people, different culture. So it was just, yeah, very, very interesting. And after my university, I kind of uh, worked for a little while in uh, at the Ivory Coast Embassy in London. Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing translation and, and, and my boss was very nice. Then I came back to Kigali and I always wanted to be a teacher for children. But, you know, in those days it was, no, 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 you can't do this, you know. So then, you know, I, 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 then I'm kind of a little blank because then I went back to England and then I met uh, then my husband, father of my children. Yeah, and got married. You know, it was kind of, it just happened. <laughs> it was age, kind of, what, what age were you when you got married? Uh, I was 24. Wow. No, 25, 25. And it was really quite interesting because, you know, it was coming from a Belgian background, even though I'd lived in England for a few years. But then I got married and lived in an extended family. Even though in Rwanda, I know family, we had our traditions and culture, food and language was very important. Even though I would speak French with my brother, but at lunchtime and dinnertime, we were not allowed to speak French. We had to speak, you know, Kachi, which is our Indian dialect. And to be in this Indian family uh, with a lot of tradition, even though my mother-in-law was amazing, it was kind of, you know, it was an adjustment. And then soon after, but you know, my in-laws were absolutely amazing. And my in-laws were, yeah, just incredible. Especially my mother-in-law, I had a very strong bond with her. And then, you know, and then the course of life just took you and, you know, subsequently, I kind of uh, then got divorced and moved to Canada. Um, I got to know quite a few uh, Asian families. And through his friends, I met some other families. And there was such a culture shock to how women were treated and how they were suppressed. Um, I, was, and, I was going to ask you that, like, living in this extended family and how it is, how, was, how did you adjust to that? But now you're going to talk about that. It was it was easy because, as I say, my in-laws were very nice. Good, right. Um, it wasn't that I had to do this and I had to do that. No, that wasn't the difficult part. But mm -hmm. I think the 
I, Oprah, was when I met other families, not within, you know, I come from the Ismaili community, which right. is the follower of the Aga Khan, but other families, we would meet some Memon and uh, different cultures. And I was really surprised at how um, women were treated and the abuse and the domestic violence. And it was kind of, oh boy, you know. So I remember for us, was really young, uh, I decided to go back to university. I think to the big dismay of my, my husband then, mm -hmm. who thought I was probably mad, you know, why did I need to, to go and educate? So, And I think the wealth of diversity in that multicultural society challenged me to address my own cultural tradition and reinter reinterpret it in, into a context of my everyday life. So I listened to countless stories of abuse and depression, mm -hmm. and I just kind of thought, wow, this is quite incredible. So I went back to university and I did uh, an MA in psychology and women's studies. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, it was an American university. So I was allowed to do different module compared to the British system where you just had to do the whole uh, thing. Right. So I would do a few modules and then I would take a break depending on the children. Yeah, and then I got a degree in psychology and then I did some counseling. I was then involved with a, it was called the Asian Women's Organization, where they had, in those days, we called it, <clears throat> we called it a refuge, where women who were, um, had domestic violence could go to this place. Right. <clears throat> and I got really involved in that. Is that what yeah. got you first into psychology, the fact that you had seen this domestic <clears throat> abuse? Uh, within the community and you decided maybe I should study this because they say that you study psychology or these things there's always something that pushes you you know in your yes. environment that makes you want to solve it or put an end to it yes I think you wanted to help women I wanted to I think I had it in me this you know compassion and empathy to, to relate to other people and to be able to talk to them and listen to their stories, countless stories, you know. Um, and I think that was the beginning of my journey into the, into the field of counseling. And then I also realized that any act of human violence happens in a single moment. But the scar is left on the survivor and the family that lasts for a lifetime. And I think I was quite naive in the beginning, you know, not knowing how to tackle it and how to do it and sometimes I'd be outspoken and these things you don't speak about and women put up with those and there was not there was not so much freedom you know to be able to go to the police or to go to other members of the family I remember one day I was recounting the story to my mother-in-law then and we said but we all need an umbrella and you know you shouldn't disturb their peace. So I was quite shocked, you know. So right. a woman needs an umbrella, i.e. a man, to, right. to cover up. So and, and then, you know, subsequently some people would say, well, it's okay, one beating here or there, it's not a big deal. So that was kind of common in the in the 80s, right? But it hasn't changed much, Shada, because if you look at it now, we were just talking about how with COVID, there's a lot of violence, gender-based violence, you know, whether you're looking at Kenya, 
you know, South Africa, Nigeria, in Africa, we're just seeing a lot, and in the world actually. So because people are forced to be indoors, there's just this violence that's meted against women, but no one is talking about it. So I almost feel like nothing has changed. I wouldn't say nothing has changed. I think a lot has changed. Um, of course, the violence is still there, but these days women have a choice. Women are more educated. They are more career-minded. In those days, women didn't work outside. You were basically there to look after the children. You are so dependent, I, so to say, so to speak, isn't it? Yeah. Women have a, more, more of a choice, I would say. But, you know, it's quite incredible because it's this whole attachment. Because often if you have children, and even if you don't have children, you're in a relationship. And if you come out of it, you know, uh, culturally, how does society judge you? How does they right. see you? In a way, you are alone. You become, you know, and that's very, very frightening. I think for most women, and also if they don't have the financial means, and, and then they think, well, I better stay here. At least my children are being looked after. It is, uh, and I think your culture is similar to our culture. Yes, indeed, very. As you're saying, women, it's better to be in that place where you're beaten than not to be beaten. <laughs> and, and people believe that. But I'm, I'm wondering for you, who had to deal, you know, your tr because you felt called to help women in this time and you felt you had the compassion and the empathy, what did help look like for you? What were you hoping to, to bring to them? How were you hoping to help them? Again, I think in those days, I, I don't know. I think I was just there as a listening ear. And of course, I wanted them to make a difference or leave their marriage. And, but of course, you know, it was not, like I say, it wasn't so easy. And I think a lot of time, just, it's only now I realize that just being there with them gave them the strength uh, to kind of carry on or to seek help outside. And you know, even now, it's not only gender-based violence. I mean, women stay in a marriage, even a really bad marriage, because they're just so scared to be alone. And as, as, as reading, I remember um, when you went for the Harvard um, program, you talked about closures, about an incident that helped you deal with closures. Maybe you can, you can share a little bit about that because I'd like us to talk about closures and why it's so important, at least according to you. So then, you know, I, as I ventured more into psychotherapy, well, first it was a counseling, then I came back and did a master's in psychotherapy. And then you, when you talk to people, people who have gone through war and haven't buried their children or their spouse or, um, you know, it never occurred to me then that, oh, that was so important. Mm. And it's realized then how important it is to have a closure into somebody's death. So one of the, like you read in, in when I was applying for the Harvard uh, certificate course, uh, one of the case was about this gentleman from, you know, the Middle East uh, who had fled the war and he just, felt so terrible that he, his, his son died in the war, that he never got the chance to bury his son. So again, through experience and through supervision, 
we, I helped him. I said, would you like to bury your son? Should we do it together? And what are your rituals? So he brought, you know, the incense and the gifts and the food and uh, the sweets. And, and then we said a prayer and then, you know, he kind of let go through breathing, through allowing him to say, okay, now I'm burying my son and he, he will, he's at peace. And I need to be at peace too, to know that he's in a safe place. Right. Um, and depending on the religion, but I think most religion, to have this closure to kind of put your the, the departed soul at peace is very important. And, and how does one get closure? So, you know, for death, one can see it because there's the body, there are the rituals. But what about closures in, you know, a divorce or ending a friendship or something has happened? How are those closures important and how are they different and how does one go about having closure? Well, I think the first thing is, uh, well, you have the awareness that this is what you want to do because mm. otherwise a divorce can really eat you up, you know, or, or, right. or losing a friend because you then, your mind tells you, oh, it's my fault, I should have done this, what's happening? Um, but having the awareness and accepting whether, you know, you are at fault and because they always say there are three in a relationship, right? It's your story, my story, and the real story. So even with a friend, you kind of say, okay, this is, I'm, I'm really sad that this is coming to an end. But the recognition, the awareness that I have, that this is just not working. This relationship is not working and I need to move on. And it again depends. If you are on the receiving end, is different because if you know if say your friend has kind of rejected you then you deal with the rejection and, and that's hard okay. too how do you deal with rejection so i think it's all through awareness and you know and seeking a therapist uh, who will help you to kind of you know walk you through the path mm -hmm. and then you say okay i'm going to let go of that relationship and that relationship was good for me at that time and this is a saying, right? Some relationships are there for a short time or lifelong, uh, you know, so, and you have to accept that that relationship was, had an, an ending, but you learn something from that relationship, the good and the bad and the ugly. So I think uh, once the awareness is there and once you kind of acceptance, so you have the awareness and you have the acceptance, and then you have to let go. And it doesn't happen over, overnight, I, I promise you that. It's a process. Yeah, it's a process. What if one doesn't want to let go? I mean, you're talking about a case where one has accepted and one is willing to let go and they're in that place. What if I'm not willing to let go? How do you help me out? Well, as a therapist, I would kind of look at what rejection does to you, where it's coming from. I think when I train, uh, psychotherapy was, you know, we had lots, you know, it would go on for a year and two years. And now it's usually short-term therapy. Most of the therapists would not really go in the past. So you would say, I'm in the here, I'm in the now. Okay, in my past, I've had these relationships that haven't worked. So you look at the pattern that what happens when a relationship breaks or when uh, somebody you know, it, it could be just even a simple example. Somebody is rude to you and how that, that affects you because you okay. then feel rejected. And why do you feel rejected? 
And I think, again, it's a process, you walk through it and, and you accept. And then, you know, and there are a lot of people who cannot accept reje rejection to this day. And you blame it on the other. You say, oh, you know, he or she did this, or it's her fault. And that will linger on for a long time. But the day you accept it, yeah, there's something in me that's so, so scared. Because fear comes into it. Because ultimately, what do we need? We just need care and love, right? You want somebody to love you, to care for you. And if that's not there, then how do you move in the world? How do you move to the next step? So I think, you know, once you record again, it's recognizing, having the awareness. Yes, I do feel rejected. You know, why am I feeling rejected? Does it come from maybe my childhood where, you know, my parents were not there or my parents were always too busy and I felt really lonely because often as parents, you think, oh, they're okay. The children are okay. But it's only when they grow up and they say, I'm really lonely. And I remember, I'll give you an example. It was quite interesting. I was in Vancouver and um, I was working in, as, as a counselor and I was really part of this, uh, you know, I was in my 40s and I wanted to be in this board and that board and that, you know, I had this friendship group. So I was often away and Fazana was already kind of 16 and she had a friend, but Faraz was at home often. And one day, I think my mother came or something and he must have said, I feel very lonely. And I think my mother related that. And I was not even aware. For me, it was, oh, I had to do this, I had to do this, at my classes. And then I realized, and then I took a step back and I was a lot more at home and, and a lot more present. Right. But that's because you were willing and maybe you had the awareness of being able to take a step back because I think that some people don't hear that. It's like, you're just attacking me because you don't want this and block it but you are willing to you're willing to to hear and to take that feedback what are the things that what stops us from taking feedback what stops us from hearing what others are telling us our ego right our ego yes uh, that's the big uh, the i you know i'm right and i, I know what i think and uh, um yeah, so to be able to accept your own your own weaknesses, really. And I remember at that time it was a, <clears throat> a big shock because here I was, you know, in this boat and that boat. And I think there's something in us we all want to feel recognized in society by the other. And and then children, it's only when they grow up, they'll say, I did feel very lonely, you know, or my mother was this or my father was this. By that time, I was also, I was a single parent. Right. So I think it was also, yeah, the fear. And I think I was already in the field of counseling. So I think already the awareness and the compassion was there. And, uh, you know, I'm smiling as we talked about ego, because isn't that the big E that's in all of us? We all wrestle with our egos, whether we accept it or not. But how do we get to tame that ego? Because... That's what we all need to do, isn't it? Come to terms with our ego, see our ego for what it is. Can you help listeners and anyone who's listening to the podcast? How, how can we get to tame the ego? I think the first thing is to get to know yourself. 
and you 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 have to be wanting to go into this path mm-hmm. um, often you'll hear oh yes I know myself uh, I'm XYZ you know and this but actually to be really recognized uh, that yes I am full of myself I am arrogant I'm the best and I know it all mm-hmm. and to recognize uh, and to actually really look within yourself and have that conversation with yourself to say you know you know I'll see myself oh yeah I'm so kind and so compassionate but if I really look at myself you know I have maybe some traits that oh I don't like this person or mm-hmm. that person makes me feel so and so but where is it coming from it's all within yourself why is that person making me feel terrible Mm-hmm. Oh, why am I blaming that person? So like all the spiritual, you know, teaching and will tell you, look within yourself, know yourself. Right. right. And that's a hard part. That's a hard road to walk. And I guess because of my therapy, I had to have, especially when I was doing my master's, I had to have a myself therapy. Right. And I remember, you know, being Asian and you don't really talk about yourself. And I went to my, to this therapist as part of my course. And he would say, you know, so tell me about you. So of course I would tell, you know, the practical side. And he said to me, no, I want to know more about you. Who are you? And I was, well, I have nothing to say. So he said to me, okay, should we talk to the world then? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was the beginning of uh, my own self-discovery, uh, my relationships with my family, with my friends, with the... Uh, And it is difficult to recognize when you've fallen out with a friend to say, you know, what part of me had to play in this uh, right. in this relationship? Yeah, I also feel like when you you're able to look at the mirror and see the good and see the bad in you because it's all the same and it's all you, then you're able to embrace that and then you're able to, to also be more compassionate with others because you recognize you're imperfect as well that we're all on a journey i i find i sometimes think that when you are so high-handed and you're you know if you think you're perfect then it can be so hard because you may not then be very compassionate with others and it's only when you look at at least for me i know that looking at you know knowing that i'm not perfect and knowing that the reasons you know that times i'm looking i'm like yeah i also want what chada has why can't i have it why is she the only one that you know just being able to call it name it for what it is and and then recognize yeah you know i'm i'm just this is me you know and make peace with that and i think we we are brought up into this society what the other say is so important I mean, especially in our culture, you know, so-and-so will say this or I will tell my children, oh, you have to do this because your grandma won't like, you know, or do this because your father will say X, Y, Z. But, you know, is it really the other or is it my own thing that uh, I am pushing on to the children or to myself? Because, again, you want to be the good child, the good wife, especially as women, you know, you have to be the good wife, the good mother, the the perfect uh, daughter-in-law the perfect mother-in-law so this this always this are you good enough right you always struggle with that you know because you have to always 
fight for it and you have to say, or you give yourself totally and you lose yourself because you're always trying to be the good person, right? Exactly. And when you say that, am I good enough? You know, are we ever enough? How can we, and, and I'm asking you as, 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 as a professional and a therapist, you know, how can one make peace even knowing that we are not enough because no one ever is enough, isn't it? But we need to make peace with we are not enough. How do we make peace with, with that? You know, again, it's, it's, it's knowing yourself and accepting yourself because I think often we don't accept ourselves, right? And, you know, one of the questions you had asked me is, you know, what is it to be a seeker? And, you know, that quote comes to me that an unexamined life is not worth living. Socrates said that. And it's true. And if you don't look at yourself, if you're always there to prove that you are the good wife, the good child, the good daughter, you kind of lose yourself. Right? Um, and so what is it to be good enough? So you ask yourself, what is it to be good enough? I have to be. Um, so for me, my parents are there. I have to be, my mother will pick up the phone and I have to be there. Or I have to make sure that, you know, I phone this aunt or I phone this. I have to make sure my granddaughters are okay. There's so many things that you want to do for the other, but not really for yourself, right? So I think, again, recognizing what is it to be good enough? And yes, my culture tells me this is what I have to do, but what is it that I want? And I think one of the things again in our culture is we don't have boundaries our boundaries are very fluid you know anybody can come into your house and or your siblings can come and say do whatever and then to have boundaries is very important and it's you know only through my search my own spiritual <clears throat> search or my own growth that i recognize how important it is to have boundaries you know like a simple thing is you know, my daughter will phone me and say, can the children come to you? Of course, I, I, I'm not going to say no, but I'll drop everything else. Right. Um, and now I've learned to say, well, I can't do it now because, you know, I'm busy. But yeah. how about, you know, this time, which is very <laughs> difficult to do it because then you become <clears throat> the not so accommodating mother or right. grandmother. But, but boundaries are important for that reason. I like what you say that because we always feel, and, and, and I, was, I was actually, I was having a meal just yesterday and it was my meal time. I said, I don't want to eat and listen. And then the phone rang and you know, normally it's like, let me pick and I'm eating. And I'm like, no, I'm eating. I'll be able to call the person after I'm done eating. And, and the house will not burn, but being comfortable to do that being comfortable to say, no, it's it's okay, it's a call, we'll call back later and we'll all be alive and well. Yes, you're right. <laughs> they are very important to have boundaries. And wow. let other abuse, abusers boundaries, right? Because if right. you don't have boundaries, then you'll get hurt. But if you have boundaries, and it's very difficult, it's not as easy to say because your own self will feel Oh my God, I should do this. Or I have to go. I have to drop everything and I have to go. Like you say, I'm, I, I'm going to eat my meal and talk to my mother. Instead of, no, I do want to enjoy my meal. And mom, I'll call you in half an hour. <clears throat> so yeah. 
So it's again expectations of the other uh, or expectation of our own self because we have so much expectation. And on that note, listeners, we are going to end with boundaries, putting boundaries in our lives so that we are able to draw the lines when we need to. Thank you so much, Ada. Thank you. Well, that's all today in No Head, where we learn to live in the present moment. Thanks for listening. Join me again next Tuesday. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher, and SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Also, please share the link in your circles and do rate me. It will mean a lot to me. You can follow me on Instagram, No Head Podcast, and check the website www.nohead.space. That wraps up what I have for you today. Catch you next time, my friend. May you awaken to your self-knowledge. May you learn to accept yourself. And may you learn to set boundaries for your life. Bye-bye.